Welcome to another episode of Canons of Mass Construction. This is Edward Ornstein, Professor Fodder's teaching assistant. He's feeling a bit under the weather, so I'll be filling in for him for a couple of episodes. I also serve as editor-in-chief of the Arizona Journal of Environmental Law and Policy, and am a board member of the ABA Native American Resources Committee and a citizen of the Southeastern Muscogee Nation. I'm coming to you from Tucson, Arizona, the traditional homelands of the Tahana Atham Nation, who call this place Chuksan, meaning the place at the foot of the Black Hills. In the last episode, we finished looking at submerged land rights and then turned to allotted land rights. We looked at Cherokee Nation, Hollowbreast, and Babbitt v. Yupi, and we drew to a close a three-part series on native lands. This episode will be the first in another three-part series, this time focusing on land use and environmental protection. This episode will center on the authority to control land use and zoning, which government has the authority to regulate the use of land and other resources in Indian country. Courts will generally focus on two factors when determining whether a tribe or state has the authority to control land use. First, the citizenship of the potentially regulated person is evaluated. Is that person a member of the tribe in question, an Indian from a different tribe, or a non-Indian? Second, is the potentially regulated land Indian lands, including tribal fee land, fee land owned by tribal members, trust land, and trust allotments? Or is it not Indian land, like non-member owned fee land, federal, state, or local government land? Based on these two factors, courts will usually focus in on one of three categories of regulation, either regulation of the conduct of tribal members regulation of the conduct of non-members on Indian lands, or regulation of conduct of non-members on fee land. When we look at this, these cases, you want to pay attention to uh, both the citizenship of the person being regulated and the nature of the land in question. Perhaps the earliest relevant case is Worcester v. Georgia, which we discussed in the first uh, three-part series on native lands. Like many of the early cases, Neither litigant was a tribal member or government. Rather, this case concerned white missionaries on Cherokee Nation land with Cherokee Nation consent. Justice Marshall set down the principle that tribes retained all sovereignty that they didn't explicitly give up in treaties. The bottom line is, to quote the justice, the Cherokee Nation is a distinct community occupying its own territory, with boundaries accurately described in which the laws of Georgia can have no force, and which the citizens of Georgia have no right to enter, but with the assent of the Cherokees themselves or in conformity with treaties and with acts of Congress. This created a pretty solid foundation for tribal regulatory authority, but courts have not been so kind over the centuries. The next and probably most critical watershed moment for civil jurisdiction in Indian country was Montana v. U.S. It created the framework for a whole slew of civil regulatory authority issues. This case concerned whether the Crow tribe could ban hunting and fishing on non-Indian owned fee land that was a part of the congressionally established reservation, but which had fallen out of direct tribal ownership. The rule that was laid down was that while tribes retained the power to punish tribal offenders, and tribes retained their inherent 
power to determine tribal membership, to regulate domestic relations among members, and to prescribe rules of inheritance for members, the exercise of tribal power beyond what was necessary to protect tribal self-government or to control internal relations is inconsistent with the dependent status of the tribes, and so, according to the court, cannot survive without express congressional delegation. Congressional delegation could be an act of Congress or treaty provisions. Now, that sounds like a pretty unwelcome rule for tribal governments, limiting tribal power to governing members but not non-members. But the two exceptions that the court laid down to the Montana rule have become the key channels by which tribes can exercise regulatory authority over non-members, and the boundaries of these exceptions have been continuously pressed by tribal governments in the interest of exercising their sovereignty. These exceptions are drawn from tribal inherent sovereignty, the same font of power as Worcester, rather than relying on congressional delegation. The first of the Montana exceptions uh, might be referred to as the consensual relationship exception, where the tribe is in a consensual relationship with an entity for commercial dealings, contracts, leases, or other arrangements, then there exists a consensual relationship between that entity and the tribe, and the tribe retains inherent sovereign power to exercise civil jurisdiction in this context. The second exception might be called the direct effects exception, where the action by a non-Indian on fee land threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity economic security, or the health and welfare of the tribe, then the tribe has some civil regulatory authority. Uh, this might also be considered sort of a limited police powers exception. Now, in the Montana v. U.S. case, the Crow tribe was not able to regulate non-member conduct. There was no authority to prohibit hunting and fishing by non-members on lands no longer owned by the tribe, no relationships between the tribal self-government uh, or internal relations, and that was unfortunate for the Crow tribe. However, future cases have shown that tribes are willing to push that boundary uh, and really uh, play off of those exceptions to establish a civil regulatory authority over non-members on felines. To give a quick positive example, which wasn't discussed in much detail by the text, in Marion v. Hickorilla Apache tribe, the tribe was able to regulate a commercial partner that was generating value on the reservation. This falls into the consensual relationship exception of Montana. A few years later, in New Mexico v. Mescalero Apache, the court did uphold tribal authority to regulate hunting and fishing, but on slightly different grounds, that being federal preemption. One might think of this as another acceptable channel of power for tribal regulation of non-members. Where the tribe was regulating hunting and fishing in collaboration with the BIA and U.S. Fishing and Wildlife Service, an extensive federal regulatory scheme preempted state regulation. The court also distinguished this case from Montana because the land was not owned in a checkerboard pattern like the Crow Reservation in Montana, but was instead trust reservation lands and the value was being generated on reservation by the tribe, and the state was not offering substantial services that would create a cause for concurrent jurisdiction. 
This case might be used if a tribe is collaborating and creating a regulatory framework with the federal government, even where there might not be an explicit grant of congressional power or either of the two Montana exceptions. If the federal government's regulatory scheme can be relied upon to preempt state regulation, then you can use the doctrine in New Mexico v. Mescalero Apache to uphold tribal regulatory authority. Now, turning from hunting and fishing, our next case will address tribal powers to zone. In Brindale v. Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Indian Nation, the court asked, does the county or the tribe control land use via zoning on fee lands owned by non-members within the reservation? Under the general principle enunciated in Montana, unfortunately, the Yakima Nation was not found to have the authority to impose zoning on fee lands owned by Brindale and Wilkinson by the plurality. They didn't see a consensual relationship, and they didn't see any direct effects to the political integrity, economic security, or health and welfare of the tribe. However, the concurrence and dissent were more willing to entertain the second Montana exception, namely direct effects on the political integrity, economic security, or health and welfare of the tribe. It was seen that if um, activity was happening on tribal lands, it may have a direct effect. Now let's turn to a slightly different case, South Dakota v. Borland, where the court asked, can a tribe regulate non-Indian hunting and fishing on reservation lands that were purchased from the tribe by the federal government? Here the question is whether the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe could regulate hunting and fishing in lands taken by the U.S. for a dam reservoir project. The answer here, unfortunately, for tribes is no. Um, according to the court, when an Indian tribe conveys ownership of tribal lands to non-Indians, it loses any former right of absolute and exclusive use and occupation of conveyed lands, implies the loss of regulatory jurisdiction over the use of land by others. The taking of tribal trust lands and other reservation lands for the Oahe Dam and Reservoir Project here, and broadly opening up those lands for public use, the court saw that Congress, uh, through the Flood Control and Cheyenne River Acts, eliminated the tribe's power to exclude non-Indians from these lands, and with the incidental regulatory jurisdiction formerly enjoyed by the tribe. This has a lot of relevance to our current time. If we look at the uh, recent protests at Standing Rock, the tribe was unable to prevent the Dakota Access Pipeline from crossing the Missouri River because the banks of that river had been taken for the Pick Sloan Dam project uh, in the New Deal era. So we see this case uh, still bearing some unfortunate fruit. Next, let's turn to straight VA1 contractors, which is going to limit the Montana exceptions a little bit and make it even harder for tribes to exert those exceptions to the Montana rule. Here in Strait, the court asked, do tribal courts have jurisdiction over tort actions where the incident occurred on a state highway running through a reservation, but the plaintiff and defendant are non-members of the tribe? So here, it's, it's not as if a non-member got hurt in a traffic accident on this highway easement but rather both the plaintiff and defendant were non-members of the tribe. They weren't in a consensual relationship with the tribe, they were just driving through on a highway easement, and neither of them was a tribal member 
So it couldn't quite be established that there was a direct effect to tribal uh, economic security, political sovereignty, or health and welfare. The court did contemplate that a highway right-of-way might have some direct effect on the tribe in that all highways have the potential to jeopardize the safety of tribal members, but the court ultimately determined that this would swallow the rule. So the conclusion of this case is essentially that tribal court jurisdiction it may not be critical or crucial to the political integrity, economic security, or health and welfare of the tribe unless we can see an injury to tribal members. Here, Justice Ginsburg looked at whether Congress ever granted a power unless Montana exceptions apply, foregoing any attention to inherent sovereignty and further narrowing the Montana test. Here, there wasn't a consensual relationship, even though the defendant was a contractor, because the dispute was non-tribal in nature, according to the court, so no jurisdiction was determined to exist unless both non-Indians were part of the same consensual relationship with the tribe. Health and safety was also determined not to be an issue at this case, um, but this is a very narrow construction of the Montana test, and it seems as if the Montana straight paradigm is starting to take shape here. Unless Montana exceptions apply, the court now asks not whether there is an inherent sovereign power retained by a tribe, but simply was a power ever granted by Congress. But of course, if tribal jurisdiction can be established, tribal courts will often hold a much more expansive view of health and safety concerns than the federal courts. And unless there is a cause to appeal out of tribal court, the tribe can often use Montana exceptions to uphold police powers, as in Skokomish v. Mossbarger, a note case, where a non-Indian was speeding on a highway through the reservation in a school zone. One can imagine that when in a school zone, there is a much clearer connection to tribal health and safety, a direct effect on tribal health and safety, than in the case of Strait, where both the plaintiff and defendant were non-tribal members. Now let's turn to Nevada v. Hicks, where the court asked, do tribal courts have jurisdiction over damages against non-members, state officials particularly, who damaged a tribal member's property while conducting searches authorized by warrants issued by state court and approved by tribal court? So here the, the officers conducted searches on trust lands of the Fallon Paiute Shoshone Reservation. And Hicks said that officials damaged property during the search and sued in tribal court. Now the state of Nevada here challenged tribal court jurisdiction. And, you know, the court upheld the state of Nevada's opinion and said that inherent powers of a tribe do not extend to activities of non-members except to the extent necessary to protect tribal self-government or control interna internal relations. And in this case, uh, it's not imperiling tribal self-government because the tribal court approved these state search warrants and no consensual relationship could be found. While the decision of the court was unanimous in this situation, concurrences joined by O'Connor, Stevens, and Breyer noted that direct effects are more likely to take place if non-member activity is on Indian lands. This case was also limited explicitly to cases 
in which a tribal court is attempting to exercise jurisdiction over state officers exercising police powers on tribal reservations by the majority. So while this is informative for how a court might apply the Montana test, you don't necessarily need to integrate the Nevada v. Hicks case into the Montana rule unless you're looking at an issue where state officials are um, being active on a tribal reservation. To end on a more positive example of tribal civil regulatory jurisdiction, let's look at Dollar General v. Mississippi Band of Choctaw, discussed in the case notes following Hicks, in which the court upheld the consensual relationship exception over a non-member employee of Dollar General committing a tort on trust land. Basically, if a non-member wants to run a business on tribal land or work at a business on tribal land, the tribe can probably pull that person under their regulatory authority under the consensual regulation exception to the Montana rule, provided some contract exists with that entity. So let's recap. While the courts have recognized an inherent sovereign authority to punish tribal offenders and to determine tribal membership, to regulate domestic relations among members, and to prescribe rules of inheritance for members, the exercise of tribal power beyond what is necessary to protect tribal self-government or control internal relations is inconsistent with the dependent status of tribes. So says the court and so cannot survive without express congressional delegation. The exceptions to this rule are the consensual relationship exception, if the entity being regulated has entered into commercial dealings, contracts, leases, or other arrangements with the tribe, and thus consented to jurisdiction, and a tribe may also retain inherent power to exercise civil authority when that there is conduct that threatens or has some direct effect on the political integrity, economic security, or the health and welfare of the tribe. While federal courts are not incredibly generous to tribes regarding these exceptions, tribes have managed to be uh, a little bit more broad in their interpretations of these exceptions when exercising this doctrine within a tribal court, as shown by Skokomish v. Mossbarger. And while a tribe probably does not have the authority to regulate state officials acting on tribal lands with the consent of tribal courts, when the tribe is cooperating with the federal government, it does have superior jurisdiction to the state when participating cooperatively in an overarching federal regulatory scheme. However, courts have been pretty cautious about recognizing tribal abilities to zone. One can think of the implications in an area like uh, Palm Springs, where essentially the entire city is either tribal trust lands or allotted formerly tribally owned but now non-member owned fee lands. There is a substantial financial disincentive for courts to recognize tribal regulatory authority in a situation like this. But as the concurrence and dissent recognized in Yakima Nation, the court may be more willing to entertain the second Montana exception, that being direct effects, if the tribe can make a showing that not doing so would imperil the tribe's political integrity, economic security, 
or health and welfare. In the next episode, we'll turn from land use and zoning regulations to environmental regulations, which will operate on very similar principles, but with some different nuances. In particular, some recent cases have construed the Montana exceptions more favorably for tribes regarding environmental regulation. As the courts seem to recognize that environmental pollution might have a direct effect on tribal health and welfare. Tune in next week for that discussion. And thank you for joining us again this week on Canons of Mass Construction.